Thanks for joining us for this month's This Month in React for June, where we recap and digest recent developments in the ever-evolving React and web ecosystem. We are your hosts. I am Carl Vitulo. Uh, I'm a staff software engineer and community manager for Reactiflux. Hi, I'm Mark Erickson. Uh, most folks might know me as the maintainer of the Redux family libraries. And my day job is at replay.io, where we're building a true time-traveling debugger for JavaScript. Hello, I'm uh, Sebastian, and I'm known for Docusaurus as being the maintainer and also the creator of the This Week in React newsletter. Yeah, I feel like we've had a lot of news this month. So how about we jump into it? I am starting off a little broad here. The Stack Overflow Developer Survey for 2023 came out, and I feel like it had a lot of, I don't know, this is just such a like seminal survey in the programming world generally. And I guess from the survey, I was seeing just how much of the programming world is specifically web and React. So it's, I thought this was interesting to see. This is good to cover, for, even though we, this is not specifically about React or web narrowly. but yeah, I mean, for example, they had a bunch of questions about what technologies you use. And of the top five, three of them were web technologies. 65% of respondents use JavaScript. 38 use TypeScript. Half use HTML and CSS. So a lot of good insights in here. Some good examples on hybrid versus in-person work. Like only 16% of software developers are currently fully in-person. Well, 16% of respondents to the Stack Overflow survey. They had some good salary information, US, UK, India. For a front-end developer in the US, average reported salary was 140,000. Same title in the UK was 71. Same title in India was 15. So uh, one thing I love about this survey is just seeing sort of a benchmark about the industry as a whole, or at least the portion of the industry that makes heavy use of Stack Overflow. But always fun to see and definitely good things to read here. Nice. Kind of a similar theme. So general big picture news, the biggest topic of discussion that I continue to see in between Twitter and Reddit and wherever else is uh, React server components. And there's been a few pieces of information as far as technical updates and helping people understand how they actually work. Uh, first off, um, the Next.js folks put up a blog post that gave an update about the Next.js app router and its current functional status, why they built it, how it supports incremental adoption. It's stable, but they are still working on improving it. They talked about some of the plans they have for improvements, like improving the speed of the local development server, working to make fast refresh faster, um, using the, the Turbo Pack build tool and getting that from beta to production ready. They also talked about trying to improve the docs. They've done a lot of work over the last year to improve the Next.js docs specifically. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. Uh, there really aren't, isn't any documentation about React server components in the actual React docs. The only real official documentation you can find is in Next's documentation site. So the blog post talks about like we're, we're working on that as well. Uh, there were a couple other pretty good related links. Dan Abramov has a discussion thread in the, one of the React working group repos that talks about why client components get converted to HTML. He also did a very long deep dive thread, which to be honest, I still haven't even had time to read through, where he tried to rebuild 
the function and some of the basic functionality of React server components from scratch. And I've seen a lot of folks say that this was really helpful in understanding the mental model as well as the technical details of how server components work. And I think I've seen a, a couple people try to take the information that Dan wrote in this article and turn it into tutorial videos as well. And then I know that a couple other React-related frameworks besides Next are looking into using server components, and that includes both Remix and Redwood. And then there's at least a few other folks experimenting with server components in different ways. Uh, Daishi Kato, who's the maintainer of the Zustend and Voltio and Jotai libraries, has been doing his own little spin on a server component-based framework. So there's a lot of motion going on around the ecosystem in relation to server components. Yeah, definitely a lot of motion. Um, I hadn't seen the Redwood discussion of server components. And I tried to check out Remix server components proof of concept, but it doesn't look like there are very many details there at all yet. Uh, that you know, proof of concept tweet from Ryan Florence is just a, you know, it's just Lighthouse. Like, cool, okay, I guess it works well, but what, like, what does it look like? There is actually a, a few links that you can find on uh, on GitHub with uh, repositories where the the implementation is being worked on. So you can follow this on uh, on GitHub. I don't think it's Ryan Florence working on it. I think it's Jacob Parrish or something like that that is working on uh, on this implementation. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're trying to follow along the implementation, tracking the GitHub directly is where where that actually happens. Yeah, more more drama, more resources, more details trickling out. Server components are definitely still actively evolving, and I guess they probably will be for a while still. We'll get to that part in, in when we when we circle back around. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I hadn't seen the React server components from scratch. That's a that's a really good resource. That reminds me of Dan Abramov's talk. What was it? React in an alternate dimension, looking at uh, IE six. So it definitely feels like he's trying to anchor the React server components conversation sort of going back to fundamentals, like not chasing trends, not sort of saying like, here is where the path has evolved, here's the current state, but saying, let's look back at what web development used to be, let's look at what it is right now, let's try and find a, not just a local maximum, but maybe a, you know, universal maximum. I guess I appreciate that framing a lot. It's nice to not just be reactive and see this is what people have been doing recently, this is how the community and ecosystem are evolving. But really trying to go back and say, okay, this is what we're trying to build. How does that make sense in the current moment? And how does it make sense in previous moments as well? So I, I, I like that. You know, I, I've said that I defer a lot to the React core team because they have not let me down in the past. And I like that. I think that's a good framing. And I feel pretty good about the direction that that suggests to me. Dan's teaching style has always been very much from first principles. Like first I will explain the concepts and why they matter and how we arrived at them. And then I will explain the technical details. You can see that in the original Redux tutorials. You can see that in the rewritten react.dev website. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm just now finally skimming that server components from scratch article. And I can, I can definitely see that same mindset at work, which is good. Like I've, I've always found it's useful to explain a problem and then explain the solution to the problem now that you understand why it's there. And I, I think this is a really good post. Sebastian, you want to take us off? 
Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, something uh, Versal released recently. They called it uh, Screw Protection. And I found it interesting because somehow it solves a problem that I had in the past where you deploy a new version of your software and then when someone loads a, a website in the browser, they don't always refresh the page, so they, they may have a, a stale uh, client app locally. And you deploy a new server version, and then there is a mismatch between the server and the client. And somehow, Vercel released something recently that permits to, to mitigate this problem. So the idea is that if you have a, a stale client running locally, it will try to use the server code that match that, ver that client version. And, and they can do that because they do some uh, routing on, uh, on their infrastructure based on HTTP headers. So the idea is that uh, if you do a breaking change during a deployment, it might not generate errors. And they just added this to the last uh, Next.js version. So you can just add a flag to the config, uh, and this will be enabled by default. Skew protection, definitely interesting. Definitely a problem I have run into in my career. This has been a problem I've especially noticed on Netlify because they only serve the assets for the most recent deploy. So how I've seen this present is somebody keeps a tab open. You know, the app we have shipped is split into multiple bundles. So then they, they can click around, they can keep navigating within the app for all of the JavaScript they've already loaded. But then they try to go to a new page. It goes to fetch the bundle, the bundle 404s, and then something breaks catastrophically. Uh, so how we fixed that on teams I've been on in the past was we set up a 404 JavaScript bundle that would just do, you know, browser.reload, which it worked. It's fine. It's a little janky. That's led to situations where, like, if we have state that somebody's entered into text inputs or whatever, that gets lost. So happy to see a, uh, a more graceful implementation here. Yeah, what is nice, some of our examples just showed the case where you call an API, like uh, you submit a form or something like that, and there is a mismatch between the payload and the, the serverless function, but apparently it also works with uh, the static assets. So if you have a code split app with a prefetching and a lazy code loading, you should be able to, to, to fetch the appropriate bundle to the appropriate uh, immutable deployment. And uh, if you keep your tab open, uh, you have like 24 hours of transition so that you can still access the older deployments. This also presents some security concerns, apparently, because, uh, for example, if you have a vulnerable uh, deployment in the past, uh, this gives the ability of the attacker to eventually keep using it using a, using a HTTP header. So there's a trade-off. Huh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, a 24-hour grace period for refreshing a tab seems a lot better than nothing. I had always wondered why this wasn't a problem that was solved at the level of the hosting provider because, you know, it to me, it looked like kind of a bug. You know, I, okay, yes, immutable deployments, but, like, it's not that those old assets don't exist anymore. It's just they're not the freshest. So, you know, when, I, when I've controlled a server in the past, like, I only cleaned up old artifacts every now and again. So, yeah, interesting, though. Cool to see a hosting provider bring it. If you use Netlify, for example, there was a way to, to mitigate this as well. For example, you could use the Netlify cache and you can keep the previous static deployments in your cache and then merge them with the new deployment so that you get somehow, uh, you keep the old assets and then add the new assets to override the old assets and uh, then both remain accessible. So 
This is not ideal, but uh, at least it was a, a solution. The problem is that you sometimes had to clean up uh, the deployment because it's uh, it would keep growing uh, forever if you don't do the cleanup someday. Never want unbounded growth. Cool. Uh, well, I'll take us on. So React Native had a new big version put out, versions uh, 0.72. Um, the highlights were symlink support in Metro, better errors and developer experience, and uh, some more. It looked like a lot of the more is sort of finer points related to a new architecture. They, you know, they had new architecture in title case all over this post. So it looks like this relates to the new architecture in React Native Fabric, which I guess is a new renderer, new core technology for how the apps get put on the phone. Fabric is a new renderer for the new architecture. There are multiple pieces to the new architecture, and Fabric is the is the new renderer. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So it, you know, my my reading of this news here, they have a new interop layer that makes that new architecture more usable for a wider range of people who are on older versions of React Native. I saw that it's, you know, they're intentionally not doing 100% coverage right now, just focusing on common issues, common compatibility. Yeah, cool. Awesome to see it get better developer experience because that's always been my uh, largest pain point when trying to use it. And also the, the new Metro features will uh, be super useful. Uh, for example, the Simlink support was, was requested for years. I think it's maybe the oldest uh, issue in React Native. So <laughs> we are happy to, to finally have uh, the ability to, to use a monorepo without having to, to plug any extra config to make it work. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Yeah, and I see some other little smaller developer experience changes, like not failing on style errors. If you give it a bad style prop, it doesn't blow up anymore. So that's nice. You know, low priority errors, not interrupting your workflow is always good. Okay, Carl, please prepare to begin pasting in links for this one. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay, so a minute ago, we talked about the kind of the technical news around React server components. And then there's the social aspect, which is that there is still a ton of confusion and concern and actual real no kidding pain points around the rollout of server components, the behavior of Next, React's versioning, and how existing libraries in the ecosystem are supposed to interrupt with all this stuff. I've, I've been collecting a whole bunch of links, and I've actually been forwarding a lot of these over to members of the React team to give them an indication of, look, these are all the problems people are experiencing, or at least feeling right now. You need to be aware of these so that you can figure out how to actually like improve the marketing, improve the docs, and address the problems that people are having. So let's, let's roll through a few of those. Um, there was a post that came out entitled, Is React Having an Angular JS Moment? And the background on this, for people who weren't around 10 years ago, um, Angular JS 1 was very, very popular for several years. And then the Angular team announced Angular 2, which was effectively a completely different framework, but just using the same name. And the initial announcement was that there would be no migration path to go from Angular 1 to Angular 2. And this killed much of the Angular ecosystem at the time, and it coincided with React coming out, 
And so in 2013, 2014, a lot of teams said, well, if we're going to have to rewrite our app anyway, let's just switch from Angular 1 to React instead. And so a number of people have made this comparison that the rollout of server components is like an Angular 1 to 2 transition for React. Now, the React team has pushed back on this idea and pointed out that, you know, we're, we're not killing any of the, the existing client component capabilities. Um, we're, we're adding more functionality to React. So in some very real ways, the comparison is a no. But it's also true that there is no migration path that I've seen right now to add server components to an existing app unless you're using Next and you start switching over to using the app router, etc. So there is a very real feeling of this shiny new thing is being dangled in front of us and we're being encouraged to use it and yet many of us cannot. So there's, there's a feeling of being blocked there, even if the technical details are, are somewhat in between and hazy. So the article came out, and then there was one specific th Twitter thread started by Joel Hooks from, from Egghead, who was discussing it, and that led to a ton of sub-discussions. And I, I got involved in that thread halfway down and actually ended up having a bit of an argument with one of the React team members about, you know, things like defaults matter and, you know, there's, there's missing docs for a lot of these things. And a lot of other people were participating in that thread as well. And it's just an example of the kinds of frustrations that I'm seeing echoing throughout the entire ecosystem. So that's one side of things. Another is that uh, a recent next pre-Canary test release broke uh, a couple libraries like Apollo Client and React Query. And they reverted that particular change, but the implication in that I'm getting out of it is that libraries that want to be able to interact with server components in some way basically need to add an entire new bundle file to their packages and specify a new export condition called React Server so that when the React Server component bundler tries to load your library, it finds an extra special version of your library that has all the client code stripped out so that it's not sending extra pieces over the wire. The problem is this means a whole lot of extra work for library maintainers like us. And while there's been some discussion about this on GitHub and Twitter, none of this is actually documented yet. So Lens Weber, who works on both Redux Toolkit and Apollo Client, and myself and Dominic Dorfmeister of React Query have all expressed our frustration with you know, the fact that our libraries are now breaking and we're being forced to do this extra work, but there isn't even documentation for it yet. So there was, there was a very long discussion thread over in the, the Apollo repo. Um, there's been discussion on Twitter. Uh, Dominic has a PR up where he's trying to add this new export condition to React Query, and Sebastian Markbaga is trying to give some advice. So it's, it's, it's a very frustrating time for library maintainers as well. And then on top of that, uh, just within the last week or so, there's been a lot of discussion about versioning. So the current stable version of React is 18.2. 
and it's been out for over a year, and there's no indication of when an 18.3 or even a 19.0 will come out. Well, it turns out that a lot of the functionality that Next uses in the app router only exists in what's known as these canary builds of React. So React has a bunch of internal feature flags, and they put out the stable builds, which have a lot of those feature flags turned off. There's the canary builds, or in in the daily experimental builds, which have many of these feature flags turned on. And so if you're using the app router, Next actually ignores whatever version of React you have listed in your package JSON. And instead, they use one of these canary builds of React that has the extra special functionality. And the problem is that right now, there is no documentation whatsoever on what features are even turned on in one of these canary builds. And there's no way for a library maintainer to know, okay, well, you're reporting a bug with our library, like our, our, our library, but we don't even know what version of React you're using. So, and, and, or we don't know what features we should expect to be available in React when you're using like Next and the app router. So there's both frustration from maintainers where we don't know, like the React team isn't documenting, here's what's available for you to use. What are the stability of these APIs? What, what canaries have what features turned on? And then there's also an argument about React wants to be able to try out these new features. A lot of these features are expected to be used by frameworks like Next and Remix. And so the framework can kind of like add a layer of protection on top of those. And even if the features aren't 100% done and they change a little bit over time, the framework can put in effort to keep them from breaking users' applications. But what does that mean in terms of semantic versioning and publishing the libraries? So there was, there was a lot of debate about what is the right way for React to put out these features so people can try them out versus semantic versioning versus framework usage. So it's, it's all very, very confusing right now. I will say that I've, in addition to all the public debate, I've, I've had some messages on the side with some React, some, some kind of like non-public React team members who are explicitly intending to work on core documentation for server components and wanting to work on how to document, like how do we document these canary builds? Can we do something similar to like the TC39 stages process where we say, you know, we've got these 15 features. Some of them are just an idea. Some of them we have a proof of concept. Some of them are already ready to go and hopefully be able to like apply that as like a, a matrix or a table or something to all the different canary builds maybe. But right as of right now, none of that information exists and it's very frustrating. Yeah, right. And I think another aspect that you didn't even mention in all of that <laughs> is that like, it's already so hard to publish a library correctly because the ES module ecosystem has been such a nightmare. Oh, don't even get me started. I, I was flying back from React Summit a couple weeks ago, and I've been threatening to write a blog post for the last few months about, look, I've been suffering through trying to convert the Redux libraries to ESM. I'm finally going to write, I'm going, at some point I'm going to write down all the stuff I've learned and tried and bang my head against. 
So I wrote half the blog post on the flight back. It's 4,000 words long, and I still need to sit down and write the other half of that. And I even had the Redwood folks ping me and say, hey, you you know stuff something about this ESM transition, right? Can you help us? I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm the person to help with this. You're the expert, Mark. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's already very difficult because the ecosystem is still reeling from the effects of the last major you know, bifurcation of package authoring. I guess connecting this back to what I was talking about earlier with the Stack Overflow and representation of React as a you know portion of the overall tech world, and you know it's something it's like sixty percent of respondents are using React or something like that. So like the tech world is enormous. React's influence on it is enormous. The ES modules nightmare is still not over. Oh, it's still going on. Trust me. Well, you know, Mark, maybe you can end it finally at long last by finishing your 8,000-word blog post about how to, how to integrate it correctly. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but yeah, so I really feel like your, your frustrations here around trying to be a, a library author, dealing with this transition gracefully and correctly, and feeling like there's no good, like, like there is no way to do so, like it's an impossible path. Yeah, that's, that feels very real. I don't think it's bad for Bercel and Next.js to use the Canary version, but the problem is maybe it's just a documentation problem. I mean, it's a good way for them to, to have a quick feedback loop and have some adoption. Somehow it reminds me of um, what we had with DocuZorus 2. You know that it uh, took a long time to release. And the fact that the community adopted the alpha versions gave a lot of feedback because we had a lot of download on, on this version. and Many used it in production, including uh, Redux, I think. Uh, I, I know that it produced some pain because we did some breaking changes. But at the same time, it provided a ton of feedback that permitted to refine things. There's a trade-off for the Next.js team to, to find between uh, being stuck, not being able to reiterate fast, because their software has come somehow uh, too related to, to React, new features to evolve independently. So they need to iterate on, on both of them at the same time. And if they do that, then the community is a bit confused because uh, the two versions are related and not everything is properly documented on the React side. And if they don't do that, they will be much lower. For example, um, if they need a, a React core feature in, um, to, to do something in Next.js, this may mean that uh, we need a new version of React and only then uh, Next.js can use it and only then we can get feedback because the community is using the new version of Next.js that is using the new version of React. It's a much longer feedback loop, and it's not uh, good for the community to, to have things being slower. So even if it's a bit more painful in the short term, I think it's better to, to have uh, this uh, quick feedback loop somehow. No, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I'm like, I, as a library author, I'm very sympathetic to, like, I've made changes. I want people to try it out and, and actually give us feedback. I, I wish we got feedback for the Redux office and betas. Um, but the, the fact that there is no documentation on what any of these, like what these new features are and which Canary build actually have certain features turned on is, is very frustrating. You know, like, okay, bundling a library is difficult. Publishing it correctly so it can be consumed is difficult. 
it seems very frustrating, but it does make sense to me that like the documentation for that is not stable yet. Non-existent is the problem. It's not surprising to me that the documentation for that bundling and publishing concern is not existent. <laughs> it's confusing to me that the that there is no documentation for what feature flags are enabled in a specific Canary release. Like that seems like a very routine part of publishing a, a Canary package. Like if you can't, if you don't know what's in it, how can you give feedback about it? So I guess that suggests to me that they, that there's a pretty heavy reliance on like back channel communications. And so, you know, the, the 10 people who participated in creating this Canary release, they already know what's in it, so they don't need the documentation. And so it feels like that's who the audience for these Canary releases are, the people who are already in the room. When you say um, feature flags, do you have a particular feature in mind that uh, could be activated in the Canary? Well, oh, yeah, like, like the, the use hook. Um, you know, the, the React team published this RFC about this new use hook that's supposed to let you unwrap promises like a year ago. And the use hook then, or the use RFC mentions an upcoming cache, an upcoming RFC for some kind of cache component or API. And it says more details will come later. And the use RFC discussion, 95% of it was, well, people don't like the name slash what kind of values are you allowed to pass to this either now or in the future? And it went silent. And so as library maintainers who would like to integrate with suspense, our assumption was, well, nothing is happening with this RFC at all. And then next comes out with this in the app directory and they, and suddenly they're telling us that, oh yeah, the use hook is ready to go. You can, like, you know, we, we either we use it internally or you can do something with it in next and something, something, something. And we're like, wait, what? You're, you're telling us it's usable? What about the cache thing? That never materialized. And, and so like we, we just have no idea where things even stand with that stuff. I understand that. At, at the same time, somehow the, the hook is not documented in Next.js also, as far as I remember. For the end user, they are not supposed to, to even use it. So the end user, the app developer, shouldn't care about if the feature is enabled on the React Canary flag or not because this is used only internally. So the problem is more that you as a library author can't uh, try the new things because they are not documented, but uh, I, I don't think it's a problem for the majority of users. It's more that, that you can't start working on, on the new cutting edge things now because you, have, you don't have the same uh, back channel with the React team. So I, I see somehow to Two different problems. It's one for framework authors and library authors, and another for the end user. I don't think adopting Next.js with Canary release for the end user is a big deal today. Apart that, there are a lot of bugs that are reported, but they will be fixed. But the, I don't think the end user need to know much about all these new things that are not documented. Yeah, um, the, the flip side is that we, we do see a lot of our, our users asking, like, you know, can I use Apollo, React Query, RTK Query with suspense? And there's clearly a lot of interest in doing that, and we really don't have an answer for how you can do that yet. I have one more thing I want to pull in. Sebastian posted a very short little Twitter thread. I'll just read some snippets from it. When a community of consumers grow large enough, it's interesting what happens with ownership. I think there's an argument to be made it's that at some point the community bought into something and you can't change that from underneath them. They own what they bought into. 
from that perspective, if we as maintainers want to go a different direction, we should have given it a different brand, even if it's backwards compatible. I think that's very directly talking about all of this React server components drama and positioning. He posted those yesterday, about 24 hours ago. I, I'm looking forward to seeing where that may have echoes on how the React core team is thinking about React server components. Uh, and tying it back to you know where we started on this with comparisons to Angular 2, like, OK, maybe this is not an Angular 2 moment for React. It is fundamentally backwards compatible. They are engaging with, you know, maybe not engaging perfectly, but they are making good faith efforts to include stakeholders in the conversation, yada, yada. But I think this is maybe an early signal of a change in approach. And yeah, interesting to see how that shakes out. OK, now we can move on. We've beaten it fully into the ground. Sebastian, you want to introduce our next link? Yeah, it's a quick one. Um, I noticed that we are both on the jury of React Jam, so <laughs> I didn't know that that was a happy surprise. So this is a, a contest where you create a game with React. And I think it, uh, it will be nice if the Reactive Flux community wants to participate. So we'll be happy to review your React games in, a, I think, a next month, maybe. That's a good call out. Sebastian and I are both judges for a hackathon around developing games using React and web technologies. I think it's happening on July 20th through 30th, so it's 10 days long. As judges, we will be given the, you know, I think it's going to be 10 candidates and then we grade them. Um, I'm excited for it. I think it'll be fun. We've done a couple of office hours and interest in video games has been a very common theme on what got people interested in programming. So if that's you, if you are interested in developing games, uh, yeah, check out React Jam and maybe you'll have me and Sebastian play your game. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. My, my next link here, just a kind of small update. Um, we talk a lot about Next, and I feel like Remix maybe gets a little bit short shrift, but I see that they've got a, a new V2 development server that has some relatively large changes to the some of the core assumptions around Remix. Most notably, it looks like this totally swaps out the semantics around uh, routing. The, the big comparison that I saw, you know, front and center of this announcement was previously Remix inferred what routes your pages were on based on the folder structure with you know templates and wrappers and things like that. Now that is purely based on the file name. So instead of the folder hierarchy being reflected in the routes, it's uh, using a different mechanism for determining conceptually what's a folder, what's, what looks like a folder in the URL. That's a pretty big shift. I'm interested to see them roll this out because it is such a large change to the everyday development experience of using Remix. Um, so yeah, and seeing like a subcomponent of a framework being given a new major version is interesting to me. We just talked a lot about server components and the versioning and the struggles of rolling that out. Um, so here's a different example, smaller, you know, obviously Remix is inherently a subset of React usage, so it, the, the ecosystem is inherently smaller. But yeah, interesting to see another approach to making a major revision to for behaviors. It's quite interesting that they have uh, implemented future flags to enable uh, v2 features in Remix version 1. And uh, I've also seen uh, this, uh, this new flat routing convention that they implemented. 
there's also a great article that already uh, tried to use this new um, feature about the, the ability to create somehow your, your own uh, remix routing convention. So the, the idea is that you can create your own convention, read the files on the file system, and then eventually create uh, the routes you want for that file system structure. And so this gives a lot of flexibility. Uh, on Docusaurus, we already have a, a quite similar thing. We have a concept of uh, auto-generated uh, sidebar, and it gives the ability also to, to create a somehow a tree and uh, we give the, the ability to customize it and also they recently uh, released the the last version of remix with uh, dev server version 2 so as far as i understand i think the idea uh, if i remember correctly is that um, if you change code in a remix loader you will also have the hot reloading experience that you expect while it was not the case uh, before nice before we jump into lightning round so sebastian do you have more links you want to do a full discussion on yeah, I think it's worth uh, mentioning Panda CSS. Uh, it's a new CSS in JS solution that uses uh, a static analysis to to do many things with with no runtime. Uh, actually, I'm not sure it's completely without any runtime. I think uh, I read there is a very little runtime, but I'm not sure. Now today, the the devs uh, like uh, Tailwind CSS a lot. And there are good reasons for that because you can copy paste code easily and you can also delete code quite easily and, and things keep working. So this is a very interesting property. At the same time, Tailwind CSS get a lot of criticism for, for the very long class names. It looks a bit messy for people that don't uh, approve to, to this way of thinking. And Panda CSS could be a, a great alternative to, to Tailwind. It looks uh, quite interesting, and it's from the Chakra UI team. I think the Quick framework is also trying to adopt it because they um, are building integrations and making it working quick already. So I think it's a tool to follow, and uh, we'll see uh, how the community adopts it. But uh, it looks like a, like one of the most promising uh, CSS in JS solution uh, today. Cool, very neat. Ooh. I just opened the web page and the CSS is broken. <laughs> Not a deal. Yeah, interesting though. It's been a it's been a minute since we've had new CSS and JS strategies come out. So um, I'll have to dive in deeper to this and yeah, see what it's introducing. Cool. Okay, let's go to let's go to a lightning round. Mark, take us away. Okay, two things real fast. Um, one is that ever since function components came out, there were a couple of things that they could not do that class components could. One of those was defining an error boundary to catch errors that are thrown while your component is rendering. You still had to use class components to write one of those. Uh, there is a PR up that adds a new catch component to React that would basically eliminate the need to use class components for error boundaries. Uh, I haven't looked in detail at the API, but there is some form of early PR up for that. So hopefully we'll get that in the next meaningful release. Also, I had filed an issue a couple months ago saying that as good as the new React docs are, they really need to add a page on how to use TypeScript with React. And Orta Therox, who's been very involved in the TypeScript website docs, just put up a PR that adds that page. And it, I, I skimmed it right before this, this meeting and it looks fantastic. So I'm, I'm very, very excited to see a React docs page saying, here's how you use TypeScript with React. 
definitely a frustrating experience a little bit. I feel like every time I come back to it after a, a little while away, I need to find some cheat sheet to be like, wait, what am I supposed to use? What am I not supposed to use? So I guess uh, that segues nicely into another one, but react.fc is no longer viewed as an anti-pattern for typing React components. Nice to see that and nice to have documentation on how to use TypeScript with React. Cool, Sebastian, got any lightning rounds? This week in the React Native ecosystem, we had uh, we saw a lot of quick demos of uh, running the latest version of React Native on Vision OS, the SDK for Vision Pro from Apple. And I found it interesting. I don't know how it works exactly, but apparently the, the React Native dev had fun with it, so it's already working. I know it's, it's already working for, for Flutter too, so maybe it was a simple thing to do, I don't know. There are also pull requests to, to add uh, support for Vision OS in uh, Cocoa Pods, so I guess uh, it will become uh, easier to, to add support for Vision OS in the future in, in React Native applications. I ran across a website within the last couple of weeks called the React Handbook, and I haven't even had time to go through it fully in depth, but it's, it's like an overview and guide to the React ecosystem, common problems like state management and data fetching, and it tries to give some advice on what libraries to use and how to work with things. And I had actually tried to, to get a similar kind of ecosystem overview guide website started a couple years ago. And I, I put up a proof of concept page, had some discussion about what I wanted this site to be, but I never got other folks in the community to spend time helping fill out the content. So this React handbook looks very similar to the kind of idea and the kind of resource that I wanted to help build for the React community. And I'm actually still supposed to talk to the primary author of this site about, you know, here's some of the ideas I had, and maybe we can like sort of join forces and help build this one out more. I know there's a lightning round, but that also reminds me of us, of our React to Flux learning page, which has, which you curated with a ton of resources. So yeah, looks like a good resource. My next lightning round, Chrome for testing reliable downloads for browser automation. Browser automation is really tough. Puppeteer kind of sucks. Playwright, I hear, is better. Cypress, I have used successfully, but have always run into difficult edge cases. So having a blessed browser version, specifically for testing, I see this is titled Chrome for testing. Like, heck yeah, that's awesome. This is possibly an absolutely enormous level up for the testing ecosystem. And maybe we'll start getting real movement on problems like uh, visual regression tests, which I've seen probably a dozen attempts at companies trying to solve that problem over uh, my 10 years as a web developer. A quick link would be ShadCN UI. I don't know how to pronounce ShadCN, but uh, you probably heard of this trending library recently. It released recently a, a new CLI that permits to bring a, a great developer experience on top of the React component collection because it's not a library, it's a collection of uh, Tailwind and Radix components. I was quite impressed. Uh, somehow in the beginning, I didn't understand really the value of this library because somehow it looks like just a registry of, uh, of code that you can copy paste. Somehow it's bringing um, a client to, to be able to update the components, eventually use uh, artificial intelligence features to it so that you can uh, type a prompt on the client and it will update the component according to what you, you say you want to do. 
So at my, my, I, as I said earlier, my day job is working for Replay.io and we're building a time traveling debugger for JavaScript. And we just announced something we've been building for the last six to eight months called Replay for Test Suites. And the idea is that, you know, lots of companies have Cypress or Playwright tests. You run them in CI, but often either they flake, you know, they, they fail unpredictably 10% of the time, or if a test fails in CI, you have no way to go debug what happened to that test. And so what we've announced is that we have the ability to change your test running setup to record all the tests that occur. And then if a test fails, you can open up the recording and time travel debug that recording. Um, so we, we, we just announced it. Uh, we're, we're doing a waitlist thing. We're going to be doing some, some onboarding of teams to you know, try it out and make sure that what we've built actually works. But I'm, I'm really excited about this. Like the amount of time I've spent trying to figure out why end-to-end -end tests are failing is absurd. And we're talking to companies that like they routinely waste tens of thousands of dollars on Amazon costs when tests fail and they have to go rerun the whole thing. So I'm, I'm excited for something that will help, help teams fix their tests and run them consistently. Um, something else that I've been doing myself. So earlier this year, uh, I, I built our, our um, integration of the React dev tools for Chrome by doing backend post-processing of the recordings to extract the data. And we have officially turned that on. And just a week ago, I shipped a major new update for it that actually improves on what you can do with the React dev tools browser extension. So the real React extension in the browser, if you record a, or if, if you're looking at the website of a production app, you're going to see minified component names. And what I've figured out is using time travel debugging, I can go look up the original files and find the original component names and show those to you when you debug a React app in a recording. So you can go from you know, minified names like XZ to the original name, like to-do list item in the recording. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And then just yesterday I was hacking on a proof of concept feature that would be able to, to look at a React and Redux app recording and pull out information like, here's all the times your selectors ran, here's how long it took to update the UI, here's like which selectors were expensive, and hopefully give you like some performance optimization information. My last lightning round link here, uh, VTest 1.0 roadmap has been shared. I'm using VTest. I think it's great. I enjoy it. It's very quick. It runs my tests. I'm very happy with it. Um, I was always a little frustrated with Jest and it's you know parallel configuration, just one more thing to configure and set up. Cool to see it have a roadmap for getting to 1.0. Excited to have that land. Yeah, so my last link will be uh, the Docusaurus version 3 alpha. Uh, so this is what I've been working on in the in the last months, and it includes uh, MDX2 and React 18, finally. <laughs> and um, so if you use Docusaurus, I'd be happy to if you can try the, the Canary versions and, and give me feedback uh, if it's working fine or if you have any bugs, and uh, I would be happy to help you do the upgrade if you have any trouble. Oh, nice. We'll have to try that out for the Redux docs.
Okay, last item I've got is a whole slew of updates for the Redux libraries. So we've published Redux Toolkit 2.0 beta, which ha um, has some small breaking changes to remove deprecated options. It has improved TypeScript types. It has several new features, like some reducer injection and other stuff. Um, I don't have an ETA on when this will go final because we're trying to update all of our libraries which with a bunch of stuff simultaneously. Actually, the other the other big thing we're doing with a lot of these is trying to update the packaging to support better ES module common JS interop, which, as we mentioned earlier, is a royal pain. Um, but the idea is we're going to publish major versions of all the Redux related libraries simultaneously, and so I'm juggling like 15 different things in my head trying to keep track of what needs to be done. Sort of related to that, um, we just shipped React Redux 8.1, which has dev mode warnings if your selectors accidentally return new values when they shouldn't, which is a common mistake that we see people make. Um, so you can think of it think of it as kind of being similar to React running use effect twice to try to catch mistakes. I've got a PR up that will become React Redux 9 Alpha. Uh, I don't have it merged yet because there's there's a couple different packaging issues that I that I ran into that I need to solve there. And then uh, I'm I'm on business travel this week, but literally on the flight out here on Monday, I was experimenting with some proof of concept changes to how React Redux manages subscriptions and updates the UI, sort of inspired by signals or observables. Um, and the goal is to hopefully make it more optimized and update the UI faster. I spent four or five hours hacking on the flight, and I at least got something running that passes tests at the moment. But I still need to actually do a bunch of performance testing and see, like, okay, this thing that I built, is it actually any better or not? If it works out, it would probably show up in React Redux version 9 as a new opt-in hook called use tracked selector so that all the existing hooks would and, and you know components would work exactly the same as they have but if you want to make use of this new functionality there's an additional hook that you could use which would be more optimized um we'll, we'll see if this actually works out or not yeah i have another one uh there is a new ai framework called uh, ai.gsx and it's using GSX as a composition block and is meant to be integrated in React applications, but it's not a React renderer. So I don't know exactly how it works, but uh, this looked like uh, quite interesting to, to study. Cool. Okay. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, one more this month in React. Hopefully we're helping you keep on the cutting edge of the React and web ecosystem. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep an eye out next week. I'm going to be talking with a conference organizer for uh, React Rally. Yeah, I did to talk talk with him. It's a great conference. See you guys next month. Thank you. See you. Bye.